0: So, as I said, we're going to kind of take a one week break here a little bit. Um, It's not really housekeeping in one, in regard to what we're going to think about and look at today. Uh, But in some ways, it's kind of a a matter of family business, kind of an an issue within our congregation for our church to think about. Um, Early in 2000, the year 2000, through a set of circumstances and just different things going on in the life of our church, God led us as a church to begin examining scripture and just taking a look at what the word said and look at our church in regard to church leadership, how our church should be led um, and who who those leaders should be. We started that process in 2000 and for two years we taught. We studied, we prayed, we worked through it in our Sunday school classes um, and looked at what the Scripture said about elders and deacons and roles and responsibilities and what that might look like here at Westwood. So after two years, in 2002, um, at the March Church Conference, I believe, we presented a proposal to the church that had to do with us becoming what, what we call a congregationally governed, elder-led church. Um, and we made that presentation. The church approved that in March. Um, later on, you know, I think it was in June, those first elders were selected, and they began serving in October. Um, and since then, now over 20 years into that process, this season that comes during the month of July is a time for us as church members To be a part of that process by nominating men to serve in the role of elders. So, um, we felt like it'd be good, appropriate, and helpful for us to just take a day, take a Sunday, and look at the scriptures, see what God's Word says again about how we are to be led and shepherded in our church, and just to see what the Word says and look at ourselves. So, that's what we're going to do this morning for a few minutes. so why why would a church want to have elders, okay? Now, it might seem strange if you're, if this is, you know, if you've been a Southern Baptist or if you've been a Baptist all your life, it, this might be the first church that's a Baptist church that you've been in that ha- has had elders or has elders. And historically, that is just not the case. It's new, maybe relatively new um within the last couple of generations, but it is not strange. It is historically how Baptists have governed themselves, okay? It's not a Presbyterian model, all right? Um, So why would a church have elders? Let me just speak for a second about Westwood and, and part of the blessing that comes to us here in having elders. Number one, having a plurality of elders. And by the way, a plurality of elders means that there is more than one. You will not find a New Testament church that only had one pastor. There's there's a plurality of people called to lead and shepherd those churches. And so that plurality of elders, that plurality of leaders within the church means that that ministry responsibility is shared. Okay, It's shared by multiple brothers. That's a blessing. Another thing that's a real blessing is that we're not all the same. The elders are very different. We're, we're different in our personalities. We're different in our giftings. We're different in our perspectives. We're different in our opinions. And while at times that can be, uh, I don't know, it can it can require some work. We have to pray. We have to work through things together. I can tell you this, that over the last 15 or 16 months, especially in light of COVID, it has been a huge blessing to have brothers sitting around the table who see the issues differently have different perspectives on it, have different personalities, have different issues that they're concerned about and see God work through those differences to bring us to a unity. I believe that's one of the reasons why our church navigated through that time as well as we did. Or at least from my perspective, we came through it pretty well. And, and that was because all those guys sitting around that table, we're very different, okay? That's a blessing. Another blessing is we hold each other accountable in, in the ministry that we share together. We also then help each other out, protect each other in the sense of these elders that we serve with here guard and protect us from a multitude of errors. They help me just not do more stupid things than I would normally do. Okay, really, we we sound things off of each other. We talk about things. I'm not sure that's a good idea. I'm not sure that's the way to handle that. Um, I can't tell you how many times those kinds of conversations take place, and it is to your benefit that those conversations do take place. Okay, um, elders can slow pastors, and we are pastors and elders together. So you'll have to kind of help me work through the, the 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 words that I use here. Having elders can slow a a another elder down. There's things that J T Jason myself. Jim, we might want to jump in and do something. Having elders slows us down. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing to to say, wait a minute, let's think through this, let's talk through this, let's work through this. All those are good reasons to have elders. The best reason to have elders is because the New Testament commands us to. The Bible teaches us to have elders. Paul writing to Titus. Said, "This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order to appoint elders in every town, as I directed you." In Titus one five, so in First and Second Timothy and in Titus, Paul goes goes into great detail to describe what an elder does, what qualifications that person should have as they take that role and that responsibility within the church. He even goes so far as to say how elders need to be disciplined should that case arise. How those charges should be brought against an elder. How we hold our elders accountable. He talks about all of those things. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul felt such a burden for the elders in Ephesus that on his way to Jerusalem, his ministry goal was to go to Jerusalem. And and on the way there, he stopped in Acts chapter 20 and called those elders to himself. And just reminded them of their calling, reminded them of their responsibility. Peter also addresses elders. Here's what Peter writes in first Peter, chapter five, he says in verse one, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So once again, we get this picture that even Peter gives us of shepherding the flock. Not because we have to, not because it might be our job if we are called into full-time ministry, but because that's the model that he has given us. So I'm thankful we have elders. So what are elders? Who are they? There are two offices in the New Testament of leadership within the church, elders and deacons. And Paul gives specific instructions and gives clear qualifications for each of those. And I will begin, it's just important we recognize, church, that there is no great difference between those qualifications between elders and deacons, save one. And that's that call to teach or to preach the word. Other than that, the qualifications are very similar. So when we talk about elders, who or what are we talking about? Well, the word elder or and overseer and pastor are used interchangeably in the New Testament. There are three different words in the Greek, but they're used interchangeably, sometimes even within the same passage in First Timothy. I'll tell you what, let's just look at First Timothy and also at Titus. Let's just read those two passages and then we'll we'll kind of talk about them. All right. So, First Timothy chapter three. Paul is writing to his his son in the faith, his protege Timothy, and um, just giving him instructions. Um, he he kind of summarizes, I think, the whole purpose of the pastoral epistles in verse in chapter three. It's after he gives the qualifications for elders. But he says, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. He says so much there about who the church is. We are the church, the temple of the living God. We are his family. We are a pillar holding up the truth. We are buttresses supporting it, providing that foundational support to the truth of God's word and to the gospel. So how are we to do that? How are we to behave within the household of God? Well, he gives these qualifications for overseers and for deacons. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Now flip over just to Titus and let's just look at what Paul writes to Titus there. Just take a right. In verse five of chapter one, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must Hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So there we have in Timothy and Titus, these guidelines, these directions for these qualifications that are, again, interchangeable terms, overseer, elder, pastor, Titus in that passage right there refers to both terms within the same paragraph. So. Let's think for just a second about who these men are. And it's probably good that I take just a second and say that they are to be men, all right? We need to recognize what that means and why that is the case. In our doctrinal statement within the Southern Baptist Convention, the Baptist Faith and Message, it reads in one section, while both men and women are gifted for service in the church, the office of pastor, or I would say elder or overseer, is limited to men as qualified by Scripture. That's our doctrinal statement within our Southern Baptist Convention. It was put in place in the year 2000. Now, there's several Scripture passages that kind of serve as foundational for that. One would be 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, where Paul says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Paul is talking about the order there within the Godhead the order within the family, and the order within the church. When, when, when we say that while both men and women are gifted for service, the office of pastor is limited to men. This is not at all. Listen very carefully. This is not about equality. It is not about inequality. It is not about superiority. It is not about value or worth. It is about roles and responsibilities. It is about the order that God has given even within the godhead even within the family and also within the church paul was you know paul said in second excuse me in first timothy 2 let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness i do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain quiet i'm not going to go a lot into that verse i'll let susan talk about that verse okay <laughs> And let me tell you what one of the best theologians I know said about it, okay? And I share this quote with her permission. This is what she said in a ladies' Bible study several years ago. Like a marriage, life in the body or the bride of Christ is a partnership with each person, male and female, having different but necessary roles. Those roles are not as opposing but complementary of each other. And they glorify God when used to their fulfillment. We as women are created and gifted in many ways. And God uses us mightily. But he wants to use us within the parameters of his design. We must listen to him, not the world, when we seek to serve him. These guidelines apply in the church and in Christian marriages, but not in the world. So, amen, Susan. Thank you. All right. And that's all I'm going to say about that. We, we follow that. That sounded like Forrest Gump, do not know um, That's all I'm going to say about that. Elders are men, but elders are men who are called and who are qualified. They are gifted. And I'm not going to really take the time this morning to go each one of those characteristics one by one by one. We can summarize them in this one word, character, character. That's the word that we would focus on. It is the foundational qualification. The, that word for, for, for qualification means to be engraved, alright? The word carries the idea of being etched or maybe, maybe scribed into stone. It's formed over time. One writer said that, that this person of character is, is a person who is and does what they can be counted on to do, okay? person who is and, and, and does what they can be counted on to do. Paul David Tripp has written a really good little book on leadership. Lead is the name of the book. I commend it to you. Here's what he says. God values character. I'm not always sure that we do. He writes, we are more attracted to big personalities, powerful communicating, and result producing leaders than we are to persons of beautiful character. In the list that God gives us, character trumps performance. In fact, he goes on to point out, which I will in just a minute, there's only one skill mentioned in these qualifications in Timothy and Titus. There's only one performance-based skill, and that's the teaching of God's Word. That's all. The rest are matters of the heart. And Tripp goes on to say, Everything else all these other qualifications is about what moves, motivates, and directs the heart of the leader. So think about that for just a second. And I, and I have thought about it a lot over the last few weeks. Nothing Paul tells us in First Timothy or Titus or nothing Peter tells us is possible apart from the gospel. It is not possible apart from a walk with Jesus, loving him and serving him. And these character qualifications, these roles and these responsibilities, listen, are for us all. Every follower of Jesus, every man, every woman, every student are called to carry these qualifications. It is who marks us all. With the one exception of being skilled to teach or preach and lead others through the word. And even then, we should be able to speak God's word into each other's lives. But the role of an elder is unique in that regard. So we must just keep this in mind. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are the branches. If a man abides in me, he will produce much fruit. Apart from me, you can do what? Huh? Nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's true in our walk as individual believers. That's true in our walk as a, as a husband, as a wife, as a mom, as a dad, as a student, as a child, as an elder, as a deacon, as a Sunday school teacher. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It's about character. And the one umbrella characteristic that, overs, that seems to be over all of these is what Paul and Titus call being above reproach. It's an umbrella under which everything else falls. What does it mean to be above reproach? One writer said, being above reproach does not mean that a man maintains sinless perfection. It means that his demeanor and behavior over time have garnered respect and the admiration of others. You see, elders, being an elder, and I would add being a deacon, is not about worldly accomplishments. It's not about being a successful businessman. It's not about professional accolades or financial success. It is about Christ-like character. That's what is being laid out before us. And an elder and deacons, I'm going to add both of those, and every brother and sister in Christ, I'll even add that, is to be above reproach. In our personal life, in our marital life, in our social life, in our business life, and in our spiritual life. I went back and looked at some notes from a series we'd done a long time ago. um, And a couple of retreats we'd done within the elders. And and I ran across this phrase, Teflon Man. Some of you have no idea what Teflon is. Um, Think non-stick pan, okay? Think a pan that you cook with that's non-stick. And the idea of being above reproach is that nothing sticks. Those accusations that will eventually come, those charges that oftentimes come, they don't stick. We're not Velcro in that sense. And that's what being above reproach means. And again, it's not the idea of perfection. It is rather the fruit of the gospel. And within those relationships within the church, it is about when we do fall short, we admit that. We humble ourselves before each other as brothers in Christ. We confess those sins. We repent of them. We trust God to transform us by the work of his spirit. We trust him to grow us and mold us and shape us according to his word and according to our community of faith and according to the context of this church family. Here's what nine Mark said in one of their publications. All Christians should be above reproach. Elders must be. In a day where most people, Christians included, are repulsed by the idea of judging others, churches must still work patiently to discern whether a man's character is mature and above reproach, even if it's one of the most difficult things churches do in finding reliable men. But the health and the purity of the Lord's bride requires it. So it is, as G.W. McDowell, a dear brother who served in our church years ago, he was one of our charter members, the most gentle man I think I've ever met in my life, you know, and he would say, yeah, we're not called to judge, but we are called to inspect fruit. We're to be fruit inspectors. And that's what we're talking about here, to be above reproach. And look at these characteristics with me. Think about how we're to be above reproach in our personal lives. Is this man self-controlled? Or is he impulsive? Is he wise or is he foolish? Is he peaceable or is he antagonistic? Is he gentle or is he harsh? Is he a sacrificial giver and generous in his life? Is he humble or is he proud? Is he patient or is he impatient? Is he honest or not? Is he disciplined or not? Think about that personal life. Think about in his family life. Is he shepherding his family his children and his wife well, if he is single and I believe, by the way, being single is not a disqualification for being an elder. I don't I don't believe that disqualifies you. But if he is single, is he self-controlled? Is his life marked by purity? And if he is married, is he completely committed in that marriage relationship? Is he a one woman man, which what that word actually means? I don't believe this refers to divorce, and our church has not taken the position that it does refer to divorce. I think if, Jesus, if Paul had talked about divorce, he would have been—he would have just said so. But here's what I do think it means, and I think this much is clear. This is a one-woman man. He is committed to sexual purity, to moral purity within his marriage, and how important this is, church, in our culture today. Simply put, as our culture plunges headlong. Into an abyss of sexual subjectivity, of personal preference, as our culture just plunges headlong into this. It is the responsibility of Christians individually, of men and women in their marriages as followers of Christ, and of a church to be as countercultural in this as you could possibly imagine being. That we speak into our culture and we exemplify to our culture. Sexual purity. That's our call. Whether we're students, whether we're single, whether we're married, it is countercultural as it could be. But I believe that's why this is so high up on that list, that we're to be above reproach in that regard. What about in our social life and in our business life? Is this man known for his kindness? Is he hospitable? Does he open up his home and receive others into the life? Is he a friend of strangers? Is he blameless in his reputation? Meaning... Do the folks on the outside speak well of him or are they critical of him? You know, I think about that here in Roxborough. I mean, crying out loud, everybody's related to everybody. You know, you can't talk about anybody or you're going to be talking about somebody's cousin. But how do those cousins talk about you? What do they have to say? And if they do have a charge, will it stick or slide off? Based on the record of your life. Based on your walk. What about in his spiritual life? Is he committed to pouring his life into others? Is he committed to the to the great commission of making disciples? We often think of making disciples, church, is getting on a plane and going someplace else. And I love what J.D. Greer says. Don't expect you're going to get on a plane and go do somewhere else what you're not doing here. So is he pouring his life into others? And this would be true for you ladies. Are you making disciples? You mature Christian sisters. Are you making disciples of other ladies? Pouring the word into their lives. Speaking into their lives. Ministering and serving in that regard. Is he committed to making disciples? Does he love the word? Is he teaching that word? And by teaching and preaching, I don't mean necessarily standing up here. Is he doing it in life group? Is he doing it in Sunday school class? Is he doing it in a small group? Is he doing it in those settings where God provides that opportunity to take God's word, open it up, spend time in it, understand it, and then communicate it to others? Is he a man of prayer? Is he holy? Is there evidence of grace in his life? Do you see grace in the life of this brother? That's, that's what these characteristics look like that Paul gives us here. And in the end... Let me just share this story with you, and I'm, I may have done this years ago. When we first came to Westwood, there was a, 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 an organization, there was an entity, a committee in the church called called the Committee on Committees, I think is what it was called. Gail, you can remind me. Of, I may get that phrase wrong. And I'm, it, it was the nomination committee. That's what it was. It was a nomination committee. And the way our bylaws read at the time, the nomination committee chose everybody, including the nominating committee, all right? So that nominating committee basically had the role of providing spiritual oversight for the church. Um, And it was made up of different men and women who would choose their successors for the following year. And this church chose deacons when we first came by simply the nominating committee presented a list of deacons. And you voted up or down on the whole list. You just acted on that whole list of leadership that came from the nominating committee and you decided to up or down on all of those leaders at one time. A year or two into the process, a year or two we, we sit down, I'll never forget it. We had the overflow area in the old sanctuary, we close those doors. We had a deacons meeting in there one night. And 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 what was on the table was, you know, God's word gives us qualifications for these brothers. God's Word gives us this direction on who should be serving as, at that time, deacons in our church. And we read those together. And I won't get into all the detail, but by the time the evening was over, there was not a man seated around that table who was not in tears. None of us measured up to that standard. We recognized that. But we also recognize that it was God's standard and that it could not be dismissed. And we could not just say, ah, that's okay." We'll just that's not an option if we're going to walk with the Lord and try to follow him through his word. And so that night, you know, that decision, it was just I'll never forget it. It was just an amazing night as we sat around that table and those brothers Just one at a time said in in brokenness said this is the standard and we can't ignore it and we humbly acknowledge we don't meet it. But and my point in that is at the end, none of us fulfill these qualifications perfectly. None of us do. And at the same time, each of us has these qualifications before us as men and women, as elders, as deacons. And when we see that we fall short, we confess that. We acknowledge that. We humble ourselves before the Lord and each other and say, brothers and sisters, I'm struggling here. And that said, in the end, elders are to be living those lives that are worth imitating. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me, he said. And to do that, we need to know the Word. We need to teach the Word. We need to be in the Word. We need to obey it. And we need to lead others in that regard. So those are the qualifications. So what is it that these men are called to do? In a word, shepherd. In a word, shepherd. It may seem like semantics, but it's not. It is not a board of elders. It is not a board of directors. It is not... Uh, it's not an administrative board. They do administration, but that's not it. It's not a board of deacons, by the way. It, it's, it's a spiritual entity. It's a body in that sense. And when, when we are called in 1 Peter to shepherd the flock of God, that is an elder's job description. We serve the good shepherd as he shepherds his sheep through those under shepherds. That's our responsibility. Well, what is it that we do? Well, look back at what God said there in Ezekiel. I will feed my flock. I will protect my flock. I will seek out my flock. I myself will take care of my sheep. And then when he gives us that ultimate good shepherd in Jesus, Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And he goes on to say in the verse prior to that, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That's what our shepherd does for us. He he is my shepherd, so I don't have to want. He is my shepherd. He he allows me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. My good shepherd leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And my good shepherd walks with me through the valley of the shadow of death, so I don't have to be afraid. I mean, that's the picture of God's shepherding of our souls, and that's the picture of Jesus shepherding our soul. He He said the hireling is not the owner of the sheep, and when he sees the wolf coming, he says in verse 12, he leaves the sheep and flees. He flees because he's a hireling and he's not concerned about the sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the fathers knows me. I know my father and I lay down my life for my sheep. So the four primary duties, what elders here at Westwood, what elders are called to do throughout the scriptures is to lead, feed, guard. Lead, feed and guard just to care for the sheep. We're to lead our sheep. That's the term overseer. We, we watch over the sheep. We're to see that they're cared for. The writer of Hebrews instructs us as Christians. He says, he says, obey your leaders in chapter 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. We have to answer for how, how well we do here in this regard. And so in that regard, overseeing. Overseeing means speaking to our sheep sometimes when it's difficult. Overseeing means attending to and caring for the care of those sheep and taking care of them. Sometimes it means going after the strays. Sometimes it means wrestling with the stubborn ones. Sometimes it means taking care of staffing issues or budget issues. All those things fall under that category of oversight. That's what elders are called to do. We're also called to recognize this. That ultimately our goal as elders and ultimately the success of the shepherds of this flock are not going to be seen in how efficient or big we are. That's not the goal. Our goal is to be grounded in Christ and to grow into maturity. As Paul says, into him who is our head. So in that sense, it's it's if, if you're like some of us, pretty result driven, you know, I'm... I'm Going to ride a little further tomorrow than I did today. Or I'm going to do a little more today than I did yesterday. I mean, if that's your result, you're going to be frustrated sometimes in this calling. You know, I'm a sheep. And you know what? I've learned about sheep. Sheep stink. All right? We are. We're just, and, and God said this in, in his words to Ezekiel we want to throw our hips into each other and we want to lead each other away he he is our good shepherd he leads me beside the still waters there's plenty of water for everybody and yet what are we doing we're knocking one out of the way and pushing somebody else out of the way because we're sheep we're sheep and we need to be shepherded and our goal in that shepherding is not size it's not effectiveness in that sense of an understanding those things are good God gives shepherds to the church to build the body of Christ up till we all attain maturity. That's, that's what we're here for. We feed. Elders are called to feed. This is the only, as Paul Tripp says, this is the only performance-based skill that you see in all of those qualifications. It is that distinction between the role of an elder and a deacon, although deacons are told to be able to handle the mysteries of the faith well. So even there, there's competence in the word. But this one exception is the ability to teach, to feed and, and to be an able teacher to take the message of the word, the understanding of the word and communicate that to others. All right. And not only to communicate it to others, but to be able to tell when that's not taking place. All right. As elders, our responsibility is not just to feed, but it's to see that good food is being brought in. So We. We have that obligation to make sure that what's being taught is a good diet. It's not bad. It's not bad for the sheep. And we have that obligation also to raise up other teachers to equip and come along beside. You know, one of the cool things about all of these qualifications is that they can be developed. Now, these matters of the heart are a little more difficult. But we can learn these skills. We can learn to be able to handle the word well. We are also called to guard the flock, shepherd the flock of God. Now, Jesus makes it clear through Peter that we're not to lord it over those, but we're to do that by examples. How do you guard the sheep? Well, you do it from within the flock. All right. I've never been a shepherd, but I know that you do it from within the flock. And this is what Paul just so beautifully listen to what he says in Acts chapter 20 when he called the Ephesian elders to himself. I love this passage of scripture. I just, I envision this. I see Paul meeting with these brothers. I see him getting off the boat and meeting with them on the edge of the sea there. And they're just having this impromptu meeting. He'd gotten the word to them that he wanted to meet with them. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He calls these brothers together. And here's what he says in Acts 20 and verse 28. Pay attention to yourselves. I'm sorry. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. And to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So even there, he called the elders to himself in that word, but he calls them overseers. And their responsibility is to shepherd. So those terms are interchangeable. Pay attention, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Do you see the value? You see who we are in Christ? He bought us with his own blood. Here's Paul's warning. Here's his admonition. Here's his instructions. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish every one of you with tears. We guard the sheep. Brothers, we do that first by guarding ourselves. That's what Paul says. Pay careful attention to yourselves. Paul told, Peter, Paul told Timothy the very same thing. Pay close attention to your life and to your teaching, Timothy. So as we walk closely with the Lord, as we nurture our wives, as our children, as we lead and shepherd our children, as we resist sin ourselves, as we love God and love people ourselves, then we are watching ourselves. But we also do it. I made a note in my notes early this morning. We have that personal responsibility to guard our own heart. That's true for men and women. But then we also have that responsibility to open our heart to others. And this modeling requires that we be among the people and that we let people see us. And that we are close enough to our sheep and close enough to each other so that we see the lives of each other. We, we invite each other into our hearts, into our homes, into our hobbies, into our ministries. We see how people handle stress or how they don't handle it. We see how they relate to their wives or don't. We see how they relate to their husbands or have difficulty. We see how, we see how each of us respond to difficult people. Do we do that well or not? And how do we need to speak to each other in that? And when we blow it, we say so. We just admit that. That's what it means to open up our hearts and shepherd. And then finally, we pray. We are called to shepherd. That's the whole point in Acts chapter 6, right? Deacons are called to care for the church at a level that frees up the elders to do the spiritual oversight that's necessary. And Paul, I mean, the apostles said there, we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the preaching ministry. And ultimately, we as elders, we as deacons, and indeed we as all brothers and sisters in Christ are helpless if we are trying to do this on our own. We can't do it. And it's only as we come to the Lord and humbly acknowledge our need and pray and seek Him. And the sooner we all realize that, the sooner elders realize that, the sooner we hit our knees, the better off we are. That's that's who we are. Ultimately, we shepherd like Jesus. I put in your sermon notes one last point. In regard to our elders, what is the role and responsibility that we as members have? Okay? What's yours and... What's your responsibility in regard to the elders that we have? I referred to this a minute ago in Hebrews 13. Remember your elders, those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Down later on in verse 17 of chapter 13, the writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. But let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for what that would be of no advantage to you. So I just jotted down some words here in my note. One of the things he says there is remember your leaders. That's to give watch to them, to keep them in mind, to keep them in heart, to keep them in your prayers. Okay, to to remember your leaders, to give regard to them. Second, it says to watch over them. Now, to watch over our elders is not to watch over them with a critical eye toward criticism, but we are a congregationally led church. We are a congregationally governed church. We are brothers and sisters in Christ together. And we are to come along beside one another. And if you see me blowing it, then we have ways and means for you to do that in a gracious way to come say, General, I don't understand this. What, what, what was going on there? JT, what, what was happening there? There's ways that we do that. We're to watch over each other. And again, we're not looking for opportunities to slap somebody, but we're looking for and maintaining that level of accountability. We're to imitate those elders. We're to watch their lives and imitate that godly faith that they exhibit. And we are to obey them. That's what the writer of Hebrews says there. In regard to our elders, those are part of our responsibilities. As this congregation, you have that responsibility to know each other well, to keep an eye on each other well, and then to put forward those names that you believe would be men who are qualified to lead this church, shepherd this church in that way. Those names, those those men that are submitted will then come to the elders and we'll pray over them, we'll talk about them, we'll exercise spiritual judgment and discernment over them and carry that process through. That's how it works. But as members of this congregation, we have that opportunity and that obligation to be a part of that. Let me give you a couple of quick words of application. Church, again, this is who we are called to be. And So my my point of application here is personal assessment, okay? Just personal assessment. David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there's any grievous way or anxious way within me and lead me in the way everlasting in Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Every single one of us are called to be above reproach in our home, in our heart, in our business, in our work, in every walk of our lives. Every one of us are called to shepherd Each other. So personal assessment. Church, whether we like it or not, whether they see it or not or acknowledge it or not, our community, our culture, they need to see Jesus. They don't know that, but they need to see Jesus. They need to know him. They need to let him speak into their lives. And this church, Westwood, as all churches, but I'm talking to us today, we are called to be a city on a hill. And our faithful witness in what we say and how we live, how we walk with Christ, is to be this demonstration, if you will, of these godly characteristics that are laid out for our leaders. Secondly, men, I want to speak to my brothers this morning. What do you want, guys? What do you want in life? What is your goal? The Apostle Paul says here, this is a trustworthy saying. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The Bible warns us about selfish ambition, brothers. There's a place where our ambitions can be personally motivated in a selfish way. But the Bible also lays out for us over and over again examples of godly ambition, of kingdom ambition. So, men, what what are you working for? What is your ambition? What are your goals for yourself and for your family? Eighty-year-old Caleb entered into the promised land, and he came up to Joshua, and he said, Give me this hill, I shall drive them out. That's godly ambition. You give me this area of responsibility, and I'm going to take care of it, Caleb said. Paul was one of the most ambition-driven men you'll ever find, but it was godly ambition. Jesus was ambition-driven, if we understand ambition to be as we should, which is a desire to do what God wants us to do and a willingness to face and overcome obstacles to get it done. So, brothers... I believe God is calling us out this morning. He's calling us away from the world's definition of manliness and comfort and success. He's calling us away from the world's understanding of accomplishment and what it means to arrive. He's calling us to something better, something more satisfying, something more helpful for our wives and our children and our families. Something that is eternal and not temporal. Brothers, what do you want to do with your lives? And there is no greater calling than to be a shepherd. And I don't mean stand up here. I mean, shepherd your own heart. Shepherd your wife. Shepherd your children. Lead them in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. You're being called out, brothers. And this is a good call out. And finally, for every single one of us. Every person in this room needs a good shepherd. And I don't mean one with two legs. I mean Jesus, okay? He laid down His life for His sheep. And we're getting ready to come to this communion table this morning. And you know what this table represents as we... Look at it from the context of this. This is our shepherd's ultimate provision for us. Okay? This is Jesus, our shepherd, laying down his life for his sheep. His body broken, his blood shed. So that we, number one, can be reminded of how much he loves us. Number two, we can be reminded of how costly our sin is and what it cost our shepherd to provide this for us. And number three, we can be reminded that he will lead us in the paths of righteousness. He is our good shepherd. And ultimately what we need is atonement for our sin. Acceptance before God. And the understanding that Paul gives us in Romans. That if we know these things are taken care of. Then everything else is covered. That's my paraphrase for it. But if God did not hold us responsible for our own sin. But was willing to lay that guilt and shame on Jesus. If we will simply in faith trust him. This is just a picture of His gracious provision, of the opulence of His grace. That's what this table is. So do you know Jesus this morning as your good shepherd? Have you trusted Him? Turn from your sin and put your faith in Him. I invite you to do that. We're going to stand and sing. It's an opportunity for us to do business with the Lord, that personal assessment we're talking about before we come to the communion table. I'll be down here to pray with you, encourage you, receive you any way that I can. Let's stand together.